Welcome to the Horizon Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our mission as a church is to win people to Jesus Christ, disciple people in Jesus Christ, and send people for Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. We hope this episode encourages you in your walk with Jesus as you continue to grow in His love and truth. Good morning. Oh gosh, this is so fun. This is so cool. And you know what? You know what's crazy is teaching outside today. And I see people in their cars. Hello, everybody in your cars. But uh, this, okay, so this is your last Sunday morning service outside on the back lawn. And apparently I I also did the last online service for you guys too. So I I guess I'm just always the last one here. But Jesus said the last will be first. So I'm just glad I showed up to the party. I love the Botsford so much. Such an amazing family. And what God has accomplished through Bob, what God has accomplished through this staff is truly significant and special. This is one of my favorite places to come. So that's why I keep showing up. Even though I'm from Oregon, I just, I love coming back here because I really love this church. So would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter three? And I'm actually going to share with you uh, 11 chapters from my book, just as a a short overview as we biblically discuss 11 weapons to defeat the dark lord of depression. You see, today we're going through an era and epoch of spiral dynamics wherein depression is the rack and ruin of our day. Nearly 50% of Americans are reporting that the coronavirus has impacted and affected their mental health. Right now, we live in a suicidal generation. Once every 40 seconds, someone around the world will commit suicide. Suicide was the second leading cause of death in my age group. There are twice as many suicides as murders. We live in a day where there's this suicide pandemic and epidemic that has been exacerbated even by this coronavirus season that we're in. And so my heart is, is to give you more hope than ever. But the reason I'm so passionate about overcoming depression and sharing that in my messages is not just because it's a cultural issue, but because it's something that I wrestled with so personally. After the death of my brother and after the death of my sister and after going through romantic heartbreak and having a stalker person follow me around and... uh, I literally, he literally caused a car accident at one of my events recently in Florida, like he was protesting so loudly. And um, after a romantic heartbreak, after an eight-year relationship, my counselor told me, Ben, you have one of the most difficult cases of depression I've ever had to treat and diagnosed me with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So the fact that God could heal me of depression after over a decade of suicide ideation and clinical depression, the fact that God could heal me means he can heal anybody. Nobody is beyond hope. No matter how much despair you feel, no matter how much you think you're too far gone, you're in the deep weeds, the tall grass of left field, you think there's no way I could ever get healed. That's what I thought about me too. And God healed me and he can do the same for you. But what you have to understand this is hard in a snowflake generation, is that there is going to be blood in the battle. We have to understand this is a fight. If you wake up thinking you're on a cruise ship, you're going to be very disillusioned and disenchanted when you find out it's a battleship. What we need to do is go DEFCON 1, Navy SEAL Team 6, MI5, Green Beret, Paratrooper, Army Ranger, Recon, Reconnaissance, Marines. We got to go like Chris Kyle, American Sniper, you know, Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, Chad Williams, Seal of God. We 
have to be heroic stoics, happy soldiers, joyful warriors, fight a good fight, wage a good warfare, go hunt some demons, take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, fight a good fight, wage a good warfare, and go hunt some demons. Come on. We got to stand at the gates of Hades and redirect traffic. That is how God has called us to live. Can I get an amen to that? Big stuff. So let's look at Ephesians chapter three. I have so much to say, but the good thing is I wrote it in a book. So I'll meet you at the book table afterwards. But honestly, I'm gonna try to just give an overview of the 11 weapons that God armed me to the teeth with that will help empower, enable, ennoble, and equip you to walk with, talk to, follow after, lean into, depend upon the God of hope so you can defeat depression too. So let's take a look at this. Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, here it is, to be strengthened, verse 16, with might through his spirit in the inner man. So Paul is praying to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven, that's church triumphant, and earth, that's church militant, is named. That according to the riches of his glory elsewhere in this book, he called them the unsearchable riches of Christ, that you may be strengthened with might by the animating power of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. That was Paul's prayer. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would be strengthened with might by the power of the Spirit in the inner man. Now, Paul was writing to the church of Ephesus. He wrote more about spirits and demons per capita in this book than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, uh, Ephesus was a major banking center. It connected commerce from east to west. It had an arena, a stadium, I should say, that seated about 50,000 people. It had one of the architectural wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis Diana, who was the fertility goddess. It was, um, it was basically a very wealthy city. It was, a major, it was considered the bank of Asia Minor. Um, it was massively impactful even in the early church. It was called the third Christian capital behind Jerusalem and Antioch. It, it was a powerful, powerful church. In fact, the seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3 were all funneled and started through this channel of Ephesus. So it's a powerful city both uh, when it comes to spirituality, but also when it comes to economics. That's why I use terms like fullness, inheritance, riches, unsearchable riches, because it was a banking center. But also on a theological level, Paul has no specific hamartia to point out or fault or flaw that they were engaged in. And this book is a high, lofty theological treatise, so much so that scholars call it, listen, the Swiss Alps of the New Testament. They also call it the Grand Canyon of the Bible because a little later in this chapter, he talks about the height, width, breadth, length and depth of the love of God, which passes knowledge, just like the Grand Canyon has height, width, breadth, length, depth, it's perspectival. So too, that's how the love of God is. And actually the early Christians took that verse and they would put, they would put height, width, depth and length on the four corners of the cross in their early artwork that they would hang up in their homes, which is pretty cool. So this is a powerful book is all I'm getting at. And Paul's prayer, 50% of this book is either a prayer request a prayer report, or a prayer itself. And Paul prays that they would be strengthened with might. Friends, what you need, listen, is not more pity from people. 
What you need is to go into the presence of the Prince of Peace to find his power. What you need and what I need is to be strengthened with might. We need to be brave in the battle. We need to endure your rock We need to survive the storm. We need to be a courageous people. And so I want to strengthen you with 11 weapons to defeat the Dark Lord of Depression. But before I get into this, very briefly, I want to clear up two misconceptions about depression. One is that if you struggle with depression or anxiety, that means you're weak. I remember I used to have a ton of panic attacks. But like if you struggle with depression, that means you're weak. Or, or it means you're sinning. That's what sometimes in the church this projected taboo and stigma can be. Let me remind you that Moses said, God, if you continue to treat me this way, take my life. Elijah could face 850 prophets of Baal in the groves, but one angry woman named Jezebel sent him running in a chariot. He outruns the chariot, sits under a juniper broom tree in a cave, and says, God, take my life. He was suicidal. And it's funny, after he prayed, God sent ravens to give him food and made him take a nap. And then he felt better and gave the mantle to Elisha, his predecessor. Friends, there are very few things, can I just say, a good nap, a good meal, and a good prayer time won't solve. So don't overthink when you're tired, when you're hungry, and when you're isolated. Can I just say that? It's a freebie. But Elijah was suicidal. David was borderline, if not bipolar. I mean, one minute he's dancing in his linen ephod before the Ark of the Covenant. And the next minute he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Job said, I cursed the day I was born. I wish I was a stillborn. Jonah asked God to kill him. God said, why? Jonah said, because a worm ate my plant. Friends, when you're depressed, you are not seeing things clearly, right? You're seeing things through distorted vision. Lewis said, C.S. Lewis, that if, you, if your eyes are blurred by tears, you'll never see the world clearly. But Jonah wanted to, he wanted to die because a worm ate his plant. Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And Paul the apostle said, we despaired even of life. The same is true not only biblically, but historically. Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon. Jim Carrey, whose manic humor has made us all laugh. Winston Churchill. Greg Leganis, the Olympic gold medalist. Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic gold medalist of all time. Um, whether you're talking about Carrie Fisher or Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana, or Leo Tolstoy when he wrote Anna Karenina. These were all people who struggled with depression. So we need to take off the stigma and taboo that depressed people are weak because that simply is not true according to the incontrovertible evidence biblically and historically. But there's another misconception I want to clear up. And that is the diametrically opposed polar opposite dichotomy binary on the other side of the pendulum. And that's this. When we begin to remove the taboo, which we've been doing over the last decade, what happens is it's very like hipster and millennial to say, oh, I'm just being my authentic self. I'm a four on the Enneagram. So I'm learning to live with depression. Friends, why would you want to live with depression? It is so trendy right now to say, oh yeah, depression can't be cured, but you can learn to make peace with it. That's like going to a doctor and the doctor says you're sick and you're like, doctor, I'm grateful for the diagnosis, but I don't need the cure. I've learned to be at peace with my sickness. He'd say, no, I want to give you medicine. 
I want you to be cured. The Bible says God is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He applies the healing balm of Gilead to our wounds. And this is where I take a hard turn from what's really trendy right now. I absolutely 100% believe through evidence, through science, through the Bible, and through my own personal story that God can heal depression, that depression can be cured, that we can defeat it, not just learning to make peace with it or live with it. The psalmist didn't say, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Keep up the good work. He didn't say like, keep being cast down. What did he say? Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope thou in God. And that's what I want to do for you. I want to strengthen you with hope through these 11 weapons. Here we go. These are the 11 things that God used to heal me. And it's going to help you too. I believe that. The number one thing is prayer walks. Prayer walks. Did you know that scientific research has now found that if you talk to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. How sick is that? If you talk to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. Did you know that according to CAT scans and magnetic resonance imaging, we can now tell that when people pray to or meditate upon a loving God, they develop richer, thicker gray matter in their prefrontal cortex, which is where creative thinking is located. The frontal lobe of the brain activates into its highest intellectual capacity. You get more blood flow to your anterior cingulate cortex, which is where empathy and compassion are located because you can't put someone on your hit list or you put on your prayer list. There's less activity in your amygdala where the rat brain is, fear, anger, stress, high blood pressure. You say, I have no idea what any of that means. This is all it means. Prayer is good for your brain. Prayer can change your brain. A lot of people think, no, 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 I'm stuck with this psychological equipment. I'm all Freudian here in genetic determinism and I got the DNA spiral ladder from my parents. Therefore, I'm the way I am because of how I was raised, because of the genes passed on to me. I can't change my brain. Actually, science is showing that that is not true. Daniel Amen, a psychiatrist who did 83,000 brain scans over a 22-year career, more than anyone in history, he said that the single most important discovery and find that he and his colleagues had made is that the brain can change. This is called neuroplasticity. There is a plasticity and malleability to your brain so that through rote and repetition, if you continue to drive your thoughts toward the light, if you, even if you don't feel like it, you continue to think about hope, do you know what happens? Your brain starts to develop muscle memory and it becomes more hopeful. Here's what Ezekiel said. Oh, I'm getting pumped about this. Ezekiel said to the children of Israel, you say, our teeth are set on edge because our fathers ate sour grapes. You say, what does that mean? That was a proverb whereby the children of Israel were saying, we're the way we are because of our parents. And Ezekiel said, don't say that anymore. Friends, you have control over your psychological equipment. You can take your thoughts captive. Ephesians says you can be renewed in the spirit of the mind. The book of Romans says, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And now psychology and neurobiology is finding that's actually true. You can do that. So put your thoughts on things above. And one of the chief ways we do this is through prayer walks. You know, you could talk to God about anything, right? And, and you can even gossip to God. Have you read the imprecatory Psalms? Break their teeth, Lord. Like, you can gossip to God. If you gossip to God, God's not like, oh my gosh, she really said that about you, Ben? I can't believe that. Now I look at her totally different. What a juicy deet. No, God already knows. So you can talk to God like, you know how Moses talked to God? Face to face and mouth to mouth like a man would speak to his friend. How do you talk to your friend? I don't see, I don't say, you know, oh, Mitch, 
Botsford, thou wondrous human being, would you please give me a breakfast burrito this morning? In the name of the Botsfords, amen. No, I just say, can I have a breakfast burrito? That'd be sick. And guess what? That's the way you can talk to God. You don't have to posture. Or... Some people say, how do I pray? I just say, do you know how to talk? You're good. Number two, scripture scholar scuba gear. Let me say that again. Well, there's horses over there. That's sick. Scripture, scholar, scuba gear. I want to ride one of those one day. But uh, sorry, that's a little ADD. Scripture, scholar, scuba gear. Listen to this. I want to start this pillow embroidery company. That's like pink, fluffy, lacy pillows where I put all the verses on the Bible on those pillows that no one would ever put on a pillow or a greeting card or like embroidery. So you know, it's like, oh, I can do all things through Christ or God so loved the world or he works all things together for the good. I want to put like other verses, like, are you still so dull on like pink fluffy lace? So he's like, who said that? Jesus, that's in the Bible. Or here's another one. Your father is the devil. Who said that? Jesus in like pink fluffy lace. Your father, and I love that verse because the Pharisees were mocking Jesus. They said, at least we know who our father is, implying that Mary didn't have a virgin birth. And Jesus said, oh, well, I know who your father is. Your father is the devil. <laughs> I love that. He just cooked Pharisees. It was really nice to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes though. But there's all these verses in the Bible that people don't know about. That if you're willing not just to jet ski and skim the surface of the water of the word, but put on your Navy SEAL scripture scholar scuba gear and you go deeper, you're going to find so many interesting passages in the Bible that begin to distract you from the complexities of your ontological depression and start taking you to theological depths that bring healing and hope because the Bible is written that we might have hope. Romans 15, four. Like, did you know in the Bible, there's a verse where Isaiah says to the king, your palace is a hut in a field of cucumbers. Like, did you know that was in the Bible? There are, there's so much going on in the Bible beyond just Romans 8, 28. What I'm saying is, listen, there are over 3,500 promises in the Bible. If you're willing to go a little deeper and find these, these will give you so much hope to meet however many problems you might have. Over 3,500. How many of them do you know? These are yours for the taking. Number three, the magic number of greatness. Okay, this is called the 10,000 hour rule. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers in chapter two. He writes that anybody who becomes world-class, whether master criminals or hockey players, pianists or celloists, athletes, you have to practice for 10,000 hours to become world-class. So he used the example of the Beatles. A lot of people think the Beatles were just these mop-top boys from Liverpool with the ex-it factor who, through the British invasion, came on the Ed Sullivan show and wowed everybody with their One Direction-like charisma. But that's not what happened exactly. The reason the Beatles got so massive is because before they ever came to America, they, listen, had played more live shows than most bands do in their entire career before they ever came stateside. In fact, they would play at a club in Hamburg, Germany, this rundown club, for seven nights a week, eight hours a night. Probably felt like eight days a week. But they had outworked everybody before they practiced, they were terrible. Before the club, they were terrible. By the time they were done with Hamburg, they were incredible, their biographer says. So what that shows is, is that if you want to be world-class at a craft, 
you have to practice for 10,000 hours is the idea. So what helped me is I got these timers and I just practiced my craft for 11,073 hours into writing, preaching, studying. And, and I, I found that this began to heal me. And here's why. Because the Bible says, work hard and become a leader, be lazy and become a slave. Proverbs says, hard work means prosperity. Only fools idle away their time. A lot of people think work is a curse. If, if that's your theology, you're going to be depressed 40 hours out of the week. Like from nine to five, you're going to be depressed every weekday. But the Bible does not say work is a curse. In fact, God called Adam and Eve to be gardeners long before they ever ate from the forbidden fruit, before original sin was original blessing. The curse is that they had to work by the sweat of their brow by plucking up weeds and they were expelled from the garden. So Jesus, who's called the last Adam, goes back into a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And the first place the last Adam bleeds is from the sweat of his brow when he sweat great drops of blood to reverse the curse and redeem Adam's work, which means your work matters. Hone your craft. Maybe your craft is being the best mother possible. Well, guess what? During COVID-19, you got a lot of hours into your 10,000 hours of practice. Whatever your craft is, whatever your talent is, hone that gift. Because rather than waiting for opportunities to roll up, we got to roll up our sleeves. We got to stop crying and start sweating. This is huge when it comes to overcoming depression. We got to learn to say, I'm going to stop waiting for opportunities to come and I'm going to start honing my abilities. Number four. Here's a real practical one. Endorphins, anyone? Is it raining yet out there? Are you guys good? Okay, endorphins, anyone? Here's number four. Have you ever noticed how Paul used a lot of sports metaphors? There were the Pan-Ionian Games in Ephesus where he was writing, the Isthmian Games in Corinth, the Olympic Games in Athens. Paul talked about the mastery. He talked about wrestling. He talked about fighting. He talked about shadow boxing. He talked about long distance running. He talked about sprinting. Philippians 3, Epictine Ominos, which was a track term. Paul was very much into sports. There's something very powerful about athletically pushing your body to its limits because when you do so, your body activates endorphins, which trigger and unleash opioid receptors in your brain, which help minimize discomfort and are natural painkillers akin to the drug morphine. So that research has now found that a 40 minute jog has the same impact on your brain as an antidepressant. That's what science tells us. Number five, rewrite your story. Are you going through a millennial quarter-life crisis? You have lost the plot. I have good news. Jesus is the author of our faith. I'm glad you're liking my jokes over there. I see you. The Bible says Jesus is the author of our faith. The book of Psalms says all our days are written in his book. He is a master at retelling and rewriting your story. Look at the children of Israel. They were in Egypt as a baby nation. They then passed through the water of the Red Sea to wander in a wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, as a baby, was taken to Egypt. He then passed through water, the Jordan River, to wander in a wilderness for 40 days. Who's the one drawing these parallels? Matthew. Who is Matthew writing to? A Jewish audience. What was he saying to Israel? You're an occupied, defeated territory by the Roman Empire, but good news, Jesus is rewriting your story. He is retelling your narrative. And spoiler alert, there's a happily ever after. 
he wipes all tears from off your faces. How happy would characters be in the middle of a novel or plot if they knew they were going to live happily ever after? We already know the end of the story. That's why we are hopeful. Because the universe is unfolding as it should. We are not slipping down a slippery slope toward death. We are climbing up a mountain into the very presence of God. Come on. And when we believe this narrative, of course we're going to be hopeful because we know we're in the middle of the plot and bad things always happen in the middle of a story. I feel even better by encouraging myself just now. <laughs> Number six. This is a fun one. Number six. Own your oddness. That's phonetically fun to say. Everyone say, own your oddness. Friends, if you are not true to who God actually created you to be, you're going to create cognitive dissonance where your psychological constitution and your behaviors don't line up. So you're going to have to constantly hoist up, hold up, and project this avatar and image to the world that isn't who you are, and it's going to make you depressed. Let me explain what I mean. In the Old Testament, there are only three left-handed individuals mentioned by name. And they all come from the tribe of Benjamin. Does anybody know what the name Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. So all the lefties come from the right-handed tribe. But that's not the only thing that made them odd. Back then, it was believed in Hebrew culture that if you were left-handed, you were cursed. So there's one left-handed southpaw from the tribe of Benjamin, the right-handed tribe. His name was Ehud. Ehud was left-handed and he was one of the hero judges of the Old Testament. He sneaks into the presence of Eglon, who was a Moabite king oppressing the Israelis for 18 years. Now, the Bible says Eglon was a very fat man. I just picture Jabba the Hutt. This guy had his own zip code. We're, we're, we're not talking about exercise. We're talking about extra fries. The body is a temple, but sometimes we add additions. So he sneaks into the presence of Eglon and he stabs him and the sword disappears in the fat. Ehud then leaves the chambers of the king, defeats 10,000 lusty men of Moab, which means they were mighty men of Moab, and frees the Israelites from 18 years of oppression. Now, how did he do that? How do you sneak a dagger into the presence of a king? It was because he was left-handed. You see, back then, TSA, the palace security, they would mainly only frisk your left hip. Now, why would they do that? Because if you're right-handed, where do you draw your sword from? Across your body, from your left hip. But because Ehud was left-handed, he was able to sneak the sword on his right hip into the presence of the king because they wouldn't really frisk your right hip, which meant that he was able to perform his military mission and assassinate the wicked king of Moab because he was, quote-unquote, cursed. Nehemiah says, God can turn a curse into a blessing. Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. Which means our oddities are our commodities. So stop trying to be somebody else and say, God, why did you make me this way? I guess I'm just going to fake it and, and try to be what everyone expects me to be. Stop apologizing for not being what others expect you to be. You are going to have the most hope when you say, God, you made me this way for a reason. I might not understand it now, but one day when I fulfill my destiny, I'll look back and say, so that's why I was left-handed. Are you picking up this metaphor? Number seven. Oh, you're literally left-handed. Well, that's perfect. Number seven, friend ventures. Friend ventures. Friend ventures with God and squad. That's the vibe right there. I'll tell you what. Do you know what healed me from depression? 
It wasn't getting on my knees with my veins bulging at a prayer meeting. It wasn't more existential, metaphysical, navel-gazing. It wasn't deep conversations over coffee. It was a bunch of friends who grabbed their skateboards, skateboarded with me, and were just absolutely crazy. And they showed me that life can be fun again. They showed me that you can take a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously. They showed me this profoundly simple truth that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Do you want to know why I was depressed for so long? Partly, this is one of the reasons, because I hung out with depressing people. Like, here's just a big, here's just a big news flash. If you hang out with depressing people, you are probably going to be depressed. Now, I'm not talking about the people you work with or the people who happen to be in your family. I'm talking about of your own volition, voluntarily, the friendships that you're choosing to invest in. So many people say, oh, I'm just supposed to hang out with these people because they're who I grew up with or they're just at hand. No, no, no. You got to be intentional because the Bible says, if you walk with the wise, Proverbs says, you'll become wise. The Bible says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit. And it also says Daniel had an excellent spirit. Why? Because they hung out with each other and spirits are transferable. So if you're hanging out with depressing people, don't be surprised if you're depressed because if you run with skunks, you're going to smell like one. Number eight, heaven. When people you love die, you're gonna have to dig in your heels and ask yourself the hard question, what do you believe happens when you die? What do you believe happens to your loved ones when they die? Paul the apostle said, you want to know how to be depressed? This is, how, this is what Paul said. If we do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, we above all men are most miserable. Friends, the good news is the message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. The good news is that Friday's here, but Sunday's a coming. The good news is that the tomb is empty. Did you know, this is, this is gnarly, but science now validates this. This maintains majority support that all across the world, regardless of geography, language, or religion, people just tend to believe in an afterlife. Like, how do you explain that? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's God who hardwired eternity into us. And by the way, Darwinian explanations, evolutionary principles, and socio-utility cannot explicate why we love in the present tense those who've died in the past. The only explanation is that many waters cannot quench love. As Song of Solomon says, love transcends the grave. God hardwired eternity into us. That is why this maintains majority support that all around the world, people tend to believe in an afterlife for some persistence of consciousness beyond death, even in secularized communities where belief in God is relatively low. How do you explain that? Because God hardwired eternity into us. Good news, the tomb is empty. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. There's a place for you. The word troubled in Greek is shudder. Do not let your heart shudder. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Number nine, number nine, Elroy. But everyone say Elroy. Does anybody know what Elroy means? It means the God who sees. Hagar in the book of Genesis was dying in a desert. God rescued her. She was the first person to name God. This Egyptian Hebrew immigrant slave girl was the first person to name God. She said, you are. Or Elroy. 
She was the first person to give a designation to God. Not where God revealed himself, but where she named God. She said, you are El Roy, the God who sees. Shaping her consciousness through this label of the divine. How you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. You are El Roy, the God who sees. So many people are depressed because they think no one sees them. And so through sublimation and transference, a lot of people cut themselves to move the pain from their mind to their body. And it's also a bid for attention saying, do you see? And that's why it drives me crazy when people say, oh, they're just threatening suicide because they're trying to get attention. And I say, so what if they are trying to get attention? If they're so depressed that they need attention that badly, you need to listen to them. Like, like this, this is what people do. Do you see me? Because if you feel so lost, alone with the alone, cold in the cold, dark in the, uh, uh, pardon me, stuck in the outer darkness, and you're like, does anybody see me? I want to give you good news. God sees you. He is Elroy. And he doesn't just see you. He sees what's needed to heal you. The specific cure that you need, tailor-made for you. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And who is the Father? Elroy, the God who sees you. And Jesus was a master therapist. The Bible calls the Lord the wonderful counselor. You remember when Peter denied Jesus three times when a little girl peer pressured him next to a charcoal fire? So what does Jesus do a few chapters later? He builds a charcoal fire and has Peter tell him three times he loves him. Now, I don't know if you're into psychology, but that's the modern day psychiatric technique of psychodrama where he was walking Peter through his topographical triggers, the number three, the charcoal fire, to reframe his pain and to retrain his brain through neuroplasticity. It was absolutely amazing. Now, 1800 years later, Sigmund Freud's like, he's really onto something by using psychodrama. What I'm saying is he is a master therapist. He is Elroy. He's the God who sees. He knows just what you need and he sees your suffering. He is the great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. Sympathize in Greek, sin, S-Y-N, in sync, passion, passion, the passion of the Christ. Sympathize means to suffer in sync with you in Greek. The Lord suffers in sync with you. He sees. He's Elroy. Number 10, let God love on you. Let God love on you. Friends, we live in a consumeristic, capitalistic society of upward mobility where we have to earn our keep and pull ourselves up by our bootstrap and we absolutely despise free lunches. That's why culture eats ideology for lunch. In Switzerland, God looks like a banker. In Germany, he looks like a police officer. In America, he looks like a entrepreneur businessman. But basically what happens is we think because of our political regime that we have to earn and deserve God's love. But friends, we can't project the political nature of things onto the divine. We have to remember that the Bible says that God's salvation comes by grace through faith. And Romans says in hope, it's not something you have to deserve is what I'm saying. It's a free gift. So just accept it. Sit there and let God love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you. Just let him love you. You know, there's, there's a funny story in the Bible wherein it says the disciples were amazed. The disciples were never amazed that Jesus walked on water, rose from the dead, or fed 5,000 people with a kid's lunchable. But it does say they were amazed that he spoke with a woman in John 4. Because back then, and this was a Samaritan woman he spoke to, his longest conversation recorded in the Bible. Back then, Samaritan women had less value than a man's donkey because it was anti-Diluvian, primordial, knuckle-dragging, troglodytic cavemen who were oppressing women through this patriarchal paradigm. 
women were looked down upon. Samaritan women were. And so Jesus goes after her and has his longest conversation with her. And the disciples were amazed. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. He goes to those pushed to the margins. He goes to the oppressed. He goes to those pushed to the fringes. Those who are disenfranchised, the marginalized. He goes to them and he says, I love you. I have grace for you. I bestow hope upon you. And that's what God does for you as well. Let God love on you. There is no condemnation. There is no shame. It is by grace through faith in hope. Let him love on you. And perfect love will cast out fear. And in closing, number 11, dreamality. Ooh, I like this one. Dreamality. God has a way of turning reality into dreamality. Let me make it very simple for you. If God put a vision on your heart or a dream on your heart and you're not listening to what he's putting there and you're not obeying what he's putting there, you're going to be very depressed. A lot of times you say, I don't really know what to do with my life when we absolutely do know we're just so afraid of what people will think. We're so afraid of failure. We let so much fear crush us into thinking, oh, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. When God has given you a vision and dream, this is what the Bible says, that old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions, Acts and Joel respectively. Paul the apostle said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Psalm 20 says, may the Lord grant you your heart's desire. Psalm 21, 2, the Lord has granted me my heart's desire. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. The psalmist said, he satisfies the desire of every living thing. Proverbs 10, 24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's as a tree of life. So fulfill the meaning of life by enjoying the joy of being enjoyed by God. And then your dream dreams and his plans will sync up like Bluetooth pairing devices. It's pretty sick. And you're on the same wavelength as God. In that you, you, you begin to have the oracles of God. You, you begin to get direction for your life. But don't let the fear of failure or what people will think of you or what are the statistical odds that this could actually be feasible. Crush the dream or vision God put in your heart. God does not put desires in you to frustrate you, but to fulfill you. So there it is, man, 11 weapons to defeat the dark lord of depression. Let's go after it. Let's get it. Let's change our perspective because outlook determines outcome. And when our outlook gets bleak, it's time to try the uplook because if you change the way you look at things, things will change the way they look. The problem is never the problem. The problem is our perception about the problem and our hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than our problem. And when our problem is too big for us, it's just the right size for God and our praise will be a problem for our problems. So we're going to hope in God. We are not going to be the mope generation. We are going to be the hope generation. Come on. We got to fight to win. There will be blood in the battle, but we are more than conquerors. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for being the God of all hope, for giving us victory in this battle. I think of how in Romans 8 37, when it says we're more than conquerors in Greek, it literally means we are super over overcomers. What a phrase. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the victory of hope. For those who need to hear this message that struggle with anxiety and depression, I pray that they would not give in, that they would not give up, that they would give it everything they've got, that they would give everything but up. I pray that you would empower us to be the hope generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand. Thank you so much for letting me spend the morning with you guys. Again, I'd love to meet you right over here at the book table. All these weapons are in there if you want to read about it further. But friends, we have a God of hope who deserves 
our praise as we put him on full display and make much of him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining the Horizon Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel. And if this message has blessed you, please share it either directly or on social media. If you live in the San Diego area, we'd love to have you join us at a weekend service or to catch our live stream, visit horizon.org live every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next time.